Good morning, Bethany. It is so good to be here. I want to begin with a story that I heard a number of years ago, but it's a story that I will never forget because of how deeply it has impacted me. There was this naturalist that was out in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains who was engaging in a study of wildlife. And on this particular occasion, he was observing this herd of wild horses that were grazing in the grasslands of the foothills. Towards dusk, this naturalist observed a pack of wolves descending from the foothills and slowly but surely encircling this herd of wild horses. Instinctively, the horses realized that danger was in the air and they began to draw closer to each other. And as the wolves continued to close in on their prey, the horses formed this tight circle facing toward each other in the middle of the circle. And as the wild wolves began their attack, they couldn't get to the necks or heads of the horses. And the horses began to kick the wolves as they tried to get at them. And after a while, they literally kicked the living daylights out of the wolves so that the wolves went limping away and the horses lived to see another day. A couple weeks later, the same naturalist was again observing a herd, but this time it was a herd of wild jackasses. And they were also grazing in the foothills of the mountains. And again, the wolves descended from the mountains and slowly but surely encircled the herd of wild jackasses. And again, instinctively, the jackasses formed this tight circle as the wolves came closer. However, this time, instead of facing in toward each other in the circle, they faced out towards the wolves. And as the wolves descended upon them, the jackasses began kicking too. But instead of kicking the wolves, they kicked the living daylights out of each other. And they never lived to see another day. The moral of the story is we can either be like wild horses or we can be like wild jackasses. <laughs> when problems come, when danger comes, when challenges come, as a church, as a family unit, as a small group, we can form a tight circle. And we can face in toward each other and we can kick the living daylights out of the things that are attacking us. Or we can be like the wild jackasses and form a tight circle and kick the living daylights out of each other as we face the problems that come. I don't have to tell you that we are living in challenging times. Uh, COVID-19 has done a number on our culture. It has taken a toll on our families and it can take a toll on our churches if we're not careful, but we have a choice. We can either act like wild horses or we can act like wild jackasses. We can kick the living daylights out of the challenges that come or we can kick the living daylights out of each other. You know, there is so much information out there on social media. <laughs> so many uh, voices telling us how to respond and, and how to react in the midst of this pandemic. You know, some of you tune in to people like John MacArthur. He'll tell you there is no pandemic and their church of 5,000 is continuing to meet without any mask. And he says there's no problem whatsoever. I think that's really foolish. I think we need to listen to the voices of those who speak to us. And I love the way Bethany has handled this. I love how the leadership has been very uh, diligent in knowing how we should respond in terms of what the government and the health officials are telling us. And yeah, they'll be criticized. 
<laughs> my girls have often said, aren't you glad you're not a pastor these days? <laughs> and I just chuckle and I say, we need to pray for our leadership because it is a challenging time. I love what Chuck Swindell writes. He says that lack of encouragement is almost epidemic in our day. To illustrate this point, when did you last take time to encourage somebody else? He says, I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when we are full of compassion and encouragement for those who are down, needy, discouraged, or forgotten. It is absolutely essential that we as a community of faith be committed to encouraging each other. And that's what I want to talk about today, the art of encouragement. The dictionary defines encouragement as the act of inspiring others with renewed courage, renewed spirit, renewed vigor, and a renewed hope. In the New Testament, there's a very interesting word that is most translated for encouragement. It comes from two Greek words, para, which means to come alongside, and kalito, which means to call or to cast. And when you put those together, the Greek word means to come alongside for the assistance of bringing assistance to others. It's the picture of someone who's struggling through life and someone coming along and putting their arm around them and journeying with them to inspire them with encouragement. It's exactly what our Stephen ministers do here at Bethany. They come alongside of people who are going through challenging times. It's also interesting to me that this is exactly the same root word that Jesus uses in John 14 and 16 where he talks about the Holy Spirit, the comforter. In fact, some translations even use the encourager. I will give you the encourager and he will teach you all things and he will never leave you and he will be with you. Now this morning I want to talk about a person in the early church who is the personification of encouragement. He's an interesting guy, but before we get into that, I want to set the scene. In Acts chapter 2, we read about the early church. It says in verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that's the word koinonia, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that today, and also to prayer. And it says, a deep sense of awe came over them, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And notice verse 44, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything in common. They sold their property and possessions and shared the mo their money with those in need. And they worshiped together in the temple every day. And they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while they praised God and enjoyed the goodwill of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how a healthy church should function and operate? And in the midst of this group of believers in the early church, there was a man by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas was so taken in with the early church. He was just so joyful and so excited to know Jesus as his Savior that he just couldn't help but... Uh, share that with others in ways that were meaningful. Barnabas learned something. He learned that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. We're told in scriptures that Barnabas was a, a landowner of some property on the island of Cyprus where he came from. So we can assume that he was probably fairly wealthy. 
But we know for sure he was one of those rare personalities who was always thinking about how can I come alongside of others and put my arm around them and encourage them in the journey of life. In fact, it's very interesting to me that every time where Barnabas' name shows up in Scripture, we find him encouraging somebody else. Isn't that interesting? He was an incredible motivator, so much so, do you know that the apostles of the early church actually gave him a nickname? You see, Barnabas wasn't his real name. His real name was Joseph, and we're going to read about that. And so that's what I want to speak about today. This guy by the name of Barnabas, who was able to come alongside of people and encourage them and bless them. And it wasn't that he was just a backslap, backslapping stroker. No, he was sincere in what he did. This came out of his heart. In fact, there's a very interesting verse in Acts chapter 11 that characterizes Barnabas for us. It says in verse 24, Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord as a result. Notice the word good. In the Greek, it's not a passive word, it's an active word. Barnabas wasn't a person who was a spectator, who sat on the sidelines watching others do good things. Rather, he was the kind of guy that got involved. He wanted to be part of those who were doing good. It's kind of what James talks about in James 2.14. What good is it if you say you have faith, but do you don't show it by your actions? Barnabas was always reaching out to people. Notice it also says in verse 24 that he was full of the Holy Spirit, which means that he was controlled by the Spirit of God who indwelt him. I think this term is often misunderstood. Some people think that when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you have these ecstatic experiences, you shake and you get all weird. I mean, yeah, we can have the joy of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes he may do that. But really, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I love what it says in Ephesians 5, 14, 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, rather, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice the contrast there. What happens when you drink too much alcohol? You're controlled by the alcohol. It takes over your fa faculties. That's why it's illegal to drive when you have, and how much alcohol does it take? It takes 0.08% to intoxicate a person. <laughs> it's not like you are filled to the brim with alcohol, because if you were, you would die. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that the Spirit is taking control of our lives. When we become Christians, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's important to realize. And we can all be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says in Romans, we're either controlled by the Spirit or we're controlled by the flesh. And I realize there's a lot in between there. But the goal as a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, what is it? In Galatians 5, it says it's love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and faithfulness. That is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And Barnabas was a good man whose life was controlled not by fleshly desires, nor by the values of this world, but rather by God's Spirit, who indwells all of us. And finally, it says in 11, Acts 11, 24, that not only was he filled with the Spirit of God, it also tells us that in Acts 24 that uh, he was strong in his faith. I like that. 
Barnabas had what I call a contagious faith. And many people were drawn to Christ because of it. You ever meet a contagious Christian? They just kind of effervesce. And they're just the kind of people you want to be around. And you know, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will draw other people to Christ. If you are only half-heartedly living out your Christian faith, you will never, ever influence other people for Jesus. Barnabas was the kind of person that you couldn't be around him very long before you knew here was a man of integrity who walked closely with God. So here's what I want to do today. As we survey the life of Barnabas, I want us to see three transferable qualities that Barnabas had that I believe each one of us as God's children can also have. Three things about being an encourager that can transfer into your life, into my life. And these qualities will certainly spur us on. Even though we may have different personalities, we can all be better encouragers. So here's the first principle. Encouragers always perform while others pretend. That's important. Encouragers, they perform. Others pretend. I want you to notice something in this story of Barnabas that I think is very significant, uh, which draws us out. In Acts 4, 34, it says, There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was this guy by the name of Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I talked about that before. And he was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus, and he had a field that he owned, and he sold the field, and he brought the money to the apostles. Isn't that a great story? Here was Barnabas, and he was part of this early church, and he saw that there were needs in this church. And he sold this land, and he brought this unrestricted gift to the apostles, and he said, here, take it and use it as God leads you. I love when people do that. Sometimes people give a restricted gift, and that's a good thing too. But when it's unrestricted and you know the needs, then you can meet the needs. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor people came with unrestricted gifts and said, if you know of a person in need, I want you to take this and to bless them. And often they do it without even letting their names be known. His act of charity illustrates this first of three principles. Encouragers perform while others merely pretend. And the impact of uh, Barnabas' generosity is strengthened by its placement right next to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You may know that story because it's in chapter 5. And notice chapter 5 begins, But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira, they also sold some property. You may know the story. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5. And they pretended to bring the full amount of the, uh, the money to the apostles, just as Barnabas had. But they didn't. Secretly, they kept a portion of it to themselves. Probably half of it, we don't know for sure. But they wanted to have the same kind of praise that Barnabas had. They wanted to be called Barnabas II or Barnabas Jr. <laughs> but Peter saw through them. And the Holy Spirit helped him to understand what was going on. And he called them on it. He said, you've been deceitful. You are only pretending to be an encourager. You want to get the same praise of Barnabas, but you don't want to give the same kind of gift. It wasn't that it was wrong for them to hold back. It was that they pretended to give the whole thing. They wanted the recognition. 
And as a result, Peter said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And there were dire consequences of that. Let us learn from the lessons of Barnabas and Ananias that true encouragers don't pretend. Rather, they perform. Have you ever found yourself thinking, you know, I really should send an encouragement card to that person. But then you don't do it. <laughs> That's pretending. <laughs> I love what Pastor Andrew does. Uh, one of the first things he came when he did when he came on staff here is he gave encouragement cards to all the staff. And he says, I want you to send these encouragement cards to somebody this week. A while back, because of COVID and we weren't meeting, Andrew divided the whole congregation and said to the staff, I want you to call these people. I don't want you just to pretend to encourage. I want you to do it. That's what encouragers do. Mike Hodson taught me that lesson. I, I love watching Mike in the foyer of the church when he would meet somebody who would share a need. Mike wouldn't just say, oh, I'll pray for you. Often, you know, we'll say, I pray for you, and we never do it. Mike would actually stop right there in the midst of the uh, foyer and pray for those people. He was an encourager of action. That's the kind of person Barnabas was. He wasn't a pretender. He was a doer. There's a second thing that we learn about Barnabas. Encouragers see potential while others only see problems. There's a great thing about Barnabas. He's next mentioned in the New Testament in connection with a guy that we all know about. His name was Saul. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus of all places. Do you know where Damascus is? It's 300 kilometers north of Jerusalem. In fact, I had to bring a map out today. And I'm going to show you on the map just how far Damascus is from Jerusalem. Saul hates Christians so much. And because of the persecution, a number of Christians said, we're going to escape to Damascus because that's far enough away that nobody can get us. <laughs> Saul heard about it. And he went to the religious leaders. And he asked for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he could find there in Damascus because he wanted to bring them both men and women, back, all the way back to Jerusalem in chains. Saul was on a rampage. He was creating havoc everywhere. Christians had lost their homes. Christians had lost their jobs. Christians had lost family members. Christians were in prison because of Saul. The very name of Saul terrorized people. Notice it says back there in verse 1, he was uttering death threats with every breath. And then Saul on the road to Damascus met Jesus. It's a great story. He's blinded by this vision. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And Saul was blinded. And he met a guy, another guy by the name of Ananias, not the same one in Acts chapter 5. And he was the Lord's vessel. And Saul was wondrously converted to Jesus Christ. And after that, though, something happened. Saul comes all the way back to Jerusalem from Damascus. And it says in verse 26 of Acts 9, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe him. How could he be a believer? You can understand that. All of them had stories about how Saul had terrorized their lives, and they thought he's a spy. But look at verse 26. Then Barnabas brought 
him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to him. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Saul needed somebody to vouch for him. Saul's name was an outcast among Christians. And so as a result of Damascus, look, uh, of uh, Barnabas, look at what happened. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Jews, speaking, uh, Jew, uh, Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. And when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him back to Tarshish, which was his hometown. Isn't that a great story? Saul needed somebody to vouch for him. And Barnabas had heard him preach. He heard this story, and he was willing to put his life on the line for him. Was it risky? Yes. Could it be messy? Yes. I'm sure Barnabas tested out the authenticity of it. But here is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, vouching for Saul so that the believers, the apostles, in Jerusalem welcomed him and they actually gave him protection. And this is the second transferable quality of an encourager. Encouragers always see the potential in others while others, those who are not encouragers, they just see the problems. When no one else wanted to vouch for Saul of Tarsus, Barnabas was willing to stand up for him. One of the telltale signs of a Christ follower who has a gift of encouragement is he champions the underdog. It doesn't mean he jumps on the bandwagon with everyone, but he tests it out and he will come alongside of them and see whether there is authenticity. There's actually a second time that we see Barnabas doing this. It's found in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. It's a very interesting time. After Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they come back to Jerusalem, they report. There's a council in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 36, after some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of God. To see how, let's check out how the new believers are doing. And Barnabas said, yeah, that's a good idea. But Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Uh-oh, <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Why? Look at what it says. Paul disagreed strongly. That's Paul's personality. Since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued in their work. If you read the book of Acts, you'll read that John Mark all of a sudden left. He just abandoned them. Maybe he couldn't stomach it. There was persecution. There were stonings that took place on that first missionary journey. And John Mark got out of there. You see, Barnabas was close to John Mark. He was actually related to him. Paul's attitude was, he failed once, he's going to fail again. We're not going to give him another chance. And notice it says they disagreed so sharply that they separated. They parted company. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas as he left. And the believers entrusted him in the Lord's gracious care. Isn't that interesting? Paul, who had been given a second chance by Barnabas, was the person who refused to give John Mark the second chance. But not Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Now, to be 
fair to Paul, you have to understand that later on he saw the light. Because at the end of his life, when he wrote his last letter to Timothy, he was in prison. He says in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. I love that. <laughs> the very one that he didn't want to go on the journey. He says, okay, bring him. I need him. <sighs> one of the telltale signs of a follower of Christ who has a gift of his encouragement is they love to champion the underdog. Well, you see the principle? Encouragers always see the potential while others see the problem. And what I find really interesting here is that Paul was willing eventually to learn from it. But I tell you what, I am so thankful for people of encouragement, me. I remember when I started out here in ministry at Bethany, I was a young pastor, inexperienced. And there was so much to learn. And I was so discouraged at the time. The church was small. There wasn't new people coming. And I was wondering, what am I doing, Lord? But there was a guy in our church who encouraged me right when I got to my lowest point. His name was Tom Francie Sr. Now, some of you, when you hear that, you think, oh, yeah, we have a Tom Francie Sr. He, and he's up in years now. <laughs> but this was not the Tom Francie that we have in our church now. He was then John Francie Jr. This was his dad. And his dad was such an encouragement to me. And his dad gave me the spirit, the vigor, the determination that I would go on no matter what. And I thank God for him whenever I think of his name. Winston Churchill was raised with encouragement in his family. And he wasn't intimidated by failure. When he made a mistake, he simply thought through the problem and tried it again. Someone once asked him, Winston, what best prepared you to lead Britain in its darkest hour? And you're not going to believe what he said in response. It was the two years that I spent in the same grade in high school. Did you fail, they said? No, replied Winston. I had two opportunities to get it right. And what Britain really needed in World War II in its darkest hour was not a brilliant strategist, but a man with perseverance that would see the job through to the end, no matter what the difficulties. It's amazing that God calls us to be that for each other. Well, there's a third principle. Encouragers care more about people than they do about programs. And we see this lived out again in Barnabas' life in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered through the persecution, during the persecution, after Stephen's death, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, Assyria. And wherever they went, they shared Jesus. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about Jesus. And the power of the Lord was with these, and I love this, a large number of Gentiles believed, and they too turned to the Lord. And when the church at Jerusalem heard what was happening in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Why do you think they sent Barnabas? <laughs> because Barnabas was exactly what that, those new believers, these Gentiles believers needed, because this was all new to them, and they needed somebody to encourage them in the faith. And when he arrived, it says he saw the evidence of God's blessing and he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Of course, that's, of course, that's what encouragers do. 
And here's what it says. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith. And many people came to the Lord. In fact, so many people came to the Lord. There was this just explosion that Barnabas realized that he didn't have the giftedness to handle this. So what did he do? Barnabas then goes to Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And it says both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Isn't this interesting? More important to Barnabas than any notoriety that he might receive, being the one who was there, the leader of the church in Antioch, he realized that this was beyond his giftedness. And he needed a strategist. A strategist. He needed an A-type personality like Saul. And Saul, what did he do? He went looking for him in Tarsh. Saul had kind of been pushed away. He had kind of been forgotten. But Barnabas knew that he couldn't do the job without someone like Saul. Interesting footnote here. From this time on in the book of Acts, up until this time, it's been Barnabas and Saul. But now, as they go on their first missionary journey, it's never Barnabas and Saul. It's now Saul's new name, Paul and Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is in the second place, and Saul becomes, Paul becomes the leader. But you know, that never bothered Barnabas one bit. He was just happy to be part of this journey. He was happy to be using the gifts that God has used, given him to God's glory. Are you willing to do that? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, so that for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways that we can motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us never neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage each other, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Are you praying and asking God to show you ways that you can reach out and make a difference? I want to close with this quote from William Barclay. One of the highest duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at men's ideas. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. Our world is full of discouragers. But we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is a man who speaks such a word. I want to conclude by saying, will you be that person this week? Will you be an encourager to someone who needs to have an arm put around them? Maybe it's pastoral staff. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a person going through an illness. But you can be that. I want to invite you to share with me today in the Lord's table. The Eucharist, it was often called by the early church, and it literally is a word for thanksgiving. To give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done for us. I love Paul's instruction to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. For I pass unto you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces. And he said, this is my body, 
which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents the body of Jesus, the life of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld the one who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. When I partake of the bread, I remember Jesus. I remember the life he lived. I remember the parables that he taught, the miracles that he did, that he was the embodiment of God. And I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a Christ follower. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for living among us and showing us what it means to love God, to be an encourager of other people in difficult days, to be filled with your spirit. And today we eat in remembrance of your life. I invite you to eat with me. And then it says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood that was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that confirmed that we are in the new covenant. That our sins are not just covered over. They're washed away. They're never remembered again. You are the savior of our lives. You are the one who has given us the gift of eternal life. And we thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us drink together. And every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we announce the Lord's coming again. Even so, Lord Jesus, may you come quickly. And all God's people said, Amen.